people want to debate around what works and what doesn't work when the, the question should be much simpler. Is there a climate emergency or not? Are we trying to eliminate carbon emissions or not? If you answer yes to that, you can cut away a lot of the noise in that discussion and say, how many tons of carbon will this reduce? Welcome to Brookfield Perspectives, a podcast from Brookfield that explores how the firm is investing in the backbone of the global economy. I'm Lauren Steffi, and I've been writing about energy and investing for the better part of three decades. I'll be your guide as we meet the business leaders at one of the world's largest alternative asset managers. In our first season, we're taking a deep dive into Brookfield's mission to power the global transition to net zero carbon emissions. For a look at the big picture and why addressing climate change is so important, check out our first episode, which features a conversation with Brookfield's Mark Carney, Chair of Brookfield Asset Management and Head of Transition Investing, and Connor Teske, President of Brookfield Asset Management and CEO of Brookfield's Renewable Power and Transition Group. Today, we're talking about business transformation and what heavy industries like concrete and steel can and must do to reduce their emissions. It's an area we can't afford to overlook when addressing climate change. Industrial decarbonization is a big challenge, but it can also have a massive impact on the green movement. And the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, opens a lot of doors to make it happen faster. To learn more about how this works in practice, I'm joined by Brookfield's Natalie Adamate, Managing Partner in Brookfield's Renewable Power and Transition Group, and Mike Belenke, CEO of Entropy, a global leader in the emerging technology of carbon capture and storage, also known as CCS, and a company in which Brookfield has invested. Natalie is based in London, and Mike is in Calgary, Canada. Natalie, let's start with you. Why don't you, first of all, tell us a little bit about your role at Brookfield? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. I've been with Brookfield for about 12 years now. I'm the managing partner and chief investment officer for our transition investments. That means that I get to find new investment opportunities in some of these emerging transition asset classes and then work with those businesses once we've partnered with them to help find new opportunities to grow, but also ways that Brookfield can add new value. And Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. And thanks for having me on the show. I'm glad to be here. I'm the CEO of Entropy. Entropy is a pure play carbon capture and storage company. What we do is we deal specifically in carbon negativity. Climate policy is a complicated space. Anytime you have a big complicated problem, we feel like it's important to break that down into smaller pieces. So for us, we've broken it down into taking carbon dioxide, removing it from the atmosphere and storing it geologically permanently. If done well, and the way that we do it, it's a, at a low cost structure, low enough that we can actually earn more from the carbon credits that we generate than it costs to go and bury each ton of carbon. So that's the business model. And we're lucky enough to have Brookfield as our main investment and provider of capital for us to go out there and build these things, not just talk about it, not just develop the technology, but go out there and run them and decarbonize. Great. Thank you. So before we get into too much detail on carbon capture and what it is and how it works, Natalie, give us kind of an overview here about what business transformation means, especially within this context of transition investing. We launched our Brookfield Global Transition Fund about two years ago now. And one of the main themes of what we're going to be investing in is what we call business transformation. Business transformation for us means we are going to go where the emissions are. There is 
a lot of capital interested investing in low carbon green businesses or solutions today. But we think there's a huge amount of need for capital to go and invest in and alongside businesses in the hard to abate sectors. So when we talk about business transformation investing, what we mean is we might go out and buy a utility company that has a large amount of thermal emissions, either coming from coal assets or gas assets. But under our management team, we will look to make sure that we're putting that company on a pathway to reduce their emissions in line with a Paris aligned plan. So in line with a temperature goal of well below two degrees Celsius, with a goal of working towards the 1.5 degrees Celsius. So we would buy that company, we would help to look for opportunities to shut down those coal assets, convert those coal assets, all while building out renewables and other low carbon solutions. We can also do that in partnership with companies in other sectors as well. So we can look at partnering to roll out CCS on cement facilities. We could invest in a chemical recycling facility under a long-term offtake contract to someone that needs that as part of their net zero goal. We could invest in hydrogen. There's a lot of requirement from the steel industry in order to decarbonize. They will need to be large consumers of hydrogen over time as they switch from blast furnace to electric arc furnace. And we could build that hydrogen asset or jointly build that hydrogen asset and then sell that to a steel producer to help that steel producer achieve their net zero goals. Awesome. And you use the term CCS, that's carbon capture and storage. Mike, that's kind of your area. Give us the breakdown. What's carbon capture 101 for the uninitiated? (laughs) Sure. What's probably most important to sort of zero in on is that all types of carbon capture accomplish about the same thing, which is removing carbon from the atmosphere and then making sure it doesn't float around and induce global warming or climate change. So capturing it and reducing the concentration in the atmosphere. Now, when you dig down further, there's lots of categories of how it can be done. And there's some easy ones and there's some hard ones. The easiest ones are when you have a pure CO carbon dioxide stream, which is being produced by something like a chemical process or a certain type of industrial process that results in a very high concentration of CO2. That's easy. You capture it, you compress it, and you put it somewhere where it's permanently stored. But unfortunately, the most common type of carbon emissions in the atmosphere come from industrial processes where you're burning a fuel. Combustion of fuels results in a carbon dioxide concentration that's low. You can't actually compress into a liquid and get that into a geological storage location. So you have to purify it first. So when you hear about carbon capture technology, this is really about purifying the CO2 prior to getting rid of it. So the technology itself has been around for a while, I believe, but it seems like it's getting more attention now, or perhaps it's being used in specific places more frequently. What's changed? So really the biggest change is that there's now a carbon market that's adequate to incent people to invest in capturing carbon and storing it. It started in different ways around the world where you have carbon taxes or you have a cap and trade program where either way, reduction of carbon intensity is something that's incentivized. We started to see this happen in Canada only in the last three or four years where the carbon price has ascended towards $50 Canadian per ton and a plan for it to go much higher. We've seen this in Europe where only in the last year or two, the price of European emissions allowances has gone up towards 80 or 90 euros, and it bounces around. And of course, most recently, the IRA in the United States that incensed the capture of carbon, plus a lot of other investments, and the value of carbon in that is $85 per ton US. 
So those are large enough numbers that you can start to talk seriously about investing in carbon capture. The actual application of the technology, it's barely ever used. It's been used just a handful of times where you're scrubbing CO2 out of the exhaust gas from a combustion process. But it's not a complicated and not a brand new process. It's just that there's a lot of nuances to make it cheap enough to fall into that economic framework. Natalie, talk about this from an investing standpoint. What opportunities does this present? How do you capitalize on this? And then also regulation like the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, how does that affect investment in this space? What it really does is it opens up a huge range of incremental opportunities. We already thought that CCS was economic. We thought it was attractive. But what the IRA does is it provides incremental incentives and financial incentives that are available for investors, which will allow even more projects to get built that might have been a little bit more expensive initially. So that means that carbon capture as a solution is going to get rolled out in a lot larger scale now that the IRA is in place. As investors, that means there's a lot more opportunities for us to put our capital to work. So that's quite exciting. Within the transition fund, we've already made three investments into carbon capture. Of course, our first was with Mike, with Entropy, but we've also made a partnership with a company called California Resource Corporation in California, where I'm actually dialing in from today. We are working with them to develop out sequestration opportunities, but also then eventually the full value chain through to carbon capture and transport. The term sequestration here means the process of injecting the captured carbon dioxide into long-term storage underground. And then we've made a third investment into a company called Lanzatech, where we will also be their preferred funding partner for developing projects. Their technology is one that captures the carbon, puts it through a fermentation process, and produces a usable ethanol as a byproduct. So very circular economy in that ethanol can be used in plastics and other products, ultimately for the eventual sequestration. But it provides a new revenue stream that you can use out of that carbon that's captured as well. So Mike, how efficient is this process? Sure. That's a broad question. And of course, there's a broad range of answers. Something that comes up lots is how effective is it? Are we going to capture all the emissions? Is it 95% or 90%? And I think that the important thing on carbon capture is not how effective or efficient it is. It's the value per ton. It's the cost per ton of capture. We're trying to focus on a very specific goal, which is to reduce carbon. And so we go to the sources, these point sources, generally speaking, where you've got a concentrated stream. It might be low concentration, but a lot more than what's in the air. And you capture as much as you can. So we may design a carbon capture installation for 99% recovery or even higher, but that might be really expensive on a per ton basis. So what we look for is the efficient frontier. And that efficient frontier allows us to make sure that every dollar we spend captures the highest number of tons. And in certain types of applications, that might be 99%. In other applications, that might be as low as 80%. In fact, in some cases, it's much more efficient to design to the size of the storage tank that you have. So it doesn't matter what the total emissions from an industrial site might be. What matters most is the ability to get rid of the carbon permanently and to do so with a low cost. There's been a lot of debate about the viability of carbon capture. And again, it seems to be sort of a broad term, but talk a little bit about that. How much meaningful impact can this have over the long term? Right. It's funny. These days in climate policy, you ask 10 politicians or policymakers for an opinion, you get 20 answers. People want to debate around what works and what doesn't work. The question should be much simpler. Is there a climate emergency or not? 
are we trying to eliminate carbon emissions or not? If you answer yes to that, you can cut away a lot of the noise in that discussion and say, how many tons of carbon will this reduce? Carbon capture and storage is a technology, broadly speaking, there will be a little bit of new emissions created in order to get rid of the much, much larger amount of emissions. So we call that parasitic emissions. It comes from energy consumption. And that for a, a good project should be well below 10%. So we're currently running up the first carbon capture storage project in the world to address emissions from natural gas combustion. That project has a parasitic load of under 10%. So if we're doing the first little one is 16,000 tons per year, we'll actually emit under 1,600 tons to offset that per year. So it's about a 90% capture rate with a 90% capture of the parasitic emissions. So we're essentially capturing 90% of the total emissions from that specific project. Does it work or not? Yeah, it works. We're running it right now as we speak. All you have to do is go to that project, put your hand on the pipe. You can feel the carbon dioxide flowing through the pipe or going through the compressor and going down a well where it's stored permanently. And those are tons of carbon dioxide that would have otherwise been in the atmosphere doesn't require a lot of debate otherwise from our perspective. When carbon capture is commercially viable, it is economic and it can be rolled out with little to no changes to existing equipment or require minimal infrastructure build out. Why would you not do it? It buys us time in the carbon budget. It is absolutely a cost effective and good solution to use today. There are going to be multiple solutions, multiple technologies that are going to be needed to roll out to address the climate challenge that's in front of us. As we're waiting for the cost of those technologies to come down, as we're waiting for the availability of things like hydrogen to come into play, we need the solutions that can be rolled out immediately. Natalie, you bring up some good points. We do need a lot of different stuff here. The energy system we have right now started getting built out about 120 years ago and really the mass ramp up of coal. We saw that happen, first of all, in the Western world and now, of course, around the world. And the richer you get on the back of coal, the quicker you can transition to natural gas and so on. And that's the transition and the mix of energy sources that has really become massive and not the kind of thing that you can build by accident or through policy, but because demand is necessary. It took more than a century for that to get that way. The notion that we can simply put a new policy in place and replace it with one new source of energy is definitely something that stretches the credibility. It's interesting when you talk about these industries, these are very entrenched industries, very entrenched businesses. And Natalie, you may want to take the lead on this, but Mike, you probably have some insight too, but how do you get these industries to transform, to understand the need to transform when they've been doing things successfully certain ways for a very long time? I think the simple answer is if you don't transform, it's either going to become really costly if you're in a region where there are carbon taxation schemes, or you're going to become obsolete. The end customers of these products are demanding lower carbon intensity products as part of their own net zero targets. Their customers are demanding that on the back end when you think about all of us and how we choose what products we want to buy. So there is a huge push that's coming from the end consumer, which really will drive business decisions. And we're seeing that. I'm from Hamilton in Canada, in Ontario. It's a big steel town. And one project I always love to talk about because it is from my hometown is the Defasco Steel Facility. They are investing $2 billion to change from blast furnace running on coal to transform to 100% electric-powered arc furnaces to produce their steel over time. That is going to be a massive transformation in industry that we're going to see over the next decade. So these projects are happening, and they are 
supported by government, they are supported by consumers, and there's going to be a lot of positive impacts on communities on the back end of it. Just to follow up on that, Mike, it's interesting that some of the cutting edge technology is happening in places that are, in some ways, the most entrenched or most dependent on some of these industries. I'm wondering, what is the community response? What do you see operating in these places? Obviously, in Canada, with the rise of our carbon tax, we've been pushed into a spot where you have to make these investments happen or risk the future of your business. And I imagine, Natalie, that's, that's one thing that might have led uh, DeFasco towards the electric arc furnace. You might see that happen in other industries as well, including oil and gas. We're doing a project at Entropy where we're going to decarbonize the boilers that are required to provide steam for a thermal oil project. And that's a company that is worried about carbon tax getting so high that our oil reserves will no longer be economic to produce. And that really is the intent of good policy is to make it impossible to not do what the government wants to encourage. Unfortunately, in Canada, there is a challenge around carbon tax. It's a good tool to create fear or to disincentivize investment in emissions, but it's also not a great tool to incent investments, long-term investments, because the carbon tax is an annual level and it can go away. Where in the United States, we are seeing some good advancements to these policies where instead of having a stick-style punishment for emitting, now they have a carrot-style incentive where there's simply a market set, $85 per ton U.S., and it's a guaranteed revenue stream for every ton that you reduce or every ton that you bury. So that's a 12-year guaranteed revenue stream from the federal government of the United States. That's a pretty bankable. So you can see the shift that went from a Canadian model where it's to avoid carbon tax there's some risk around those investments to moving into the American style guaranteed revenue for what you bury. And that's in no small part why you see these things happening actively where there are emissions. If it's oil and gas in Alberta or Texas or, or it's power gen in the Midwest, ethanol in the Midwest. So where the emissions are is a good place to start. And in a lot of cases, you need to have not just emissions, but you also need to have a place to store local geology storage. And those tend to be commonly situated with oil and gas or coal, sedimentary basins where you can actually find a good storage zone for that CO2. So hopefully that helps close the loop on why those projects are happening, where the emissions are. That's great. Thank you. Natalie, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the war in Ukraine and what impact that's had on transitioning investing, on, on renewable energy in general. How does that affect your business or what you're looking at in terms of investing? It absolutely speeds up the need and the focus on decarbonization. But in part of that, that's just because there's been an increasing importance now on energy security and energy independence. When you think about some of the government policies that's come out over the last year, the UK and Germany have introduced regulations that will speed up permitting on decarbonization projects, specifically renewable energy, which is fantastic as we think about the need for decarbonization. The one short-term challenge that I would say that we've seen is over the last 12 months, management bandwidth is challenged because if you're sitting in Europe today and you run an industrial company that has a large consumption of natural gas, your number one priority is figuring out how you are going to continue to run your business as there is rationing of natural gas over the coming months. That certainly has led to, I'd say, a short-term change in focus of management teams. But at the same time, on the medium term, every one of the management teams we discuss, and that's from chemicals companies to steel companies to cement companies, 
all of them are thinking decarbonization absolutely needs to happen. If we can move to electrification, it needs to happen. Any investment in energy efficiency, more important now than ever. And so those projects, while probably in the last 12 months, management has been a little bit distracted. Going forward, the priority and the importance of those has only increased. And so we think that's going to be a real positive for decarbonization. When you think of buying your energy from a fossil fuel that has been incredibly volatile, instead of just buying a fixed term contract for a renewable energy operator where you can get a fixed price for that power, there's a lot of price certainty that comes into your OPEX as well as if you can switch to electric and then fully contract under PPAs. So we're seeing an increased appetite for renewable PPAs as well on the back of that. I could add to that. I, by the way, I, I should mention I'm half Ukrainian. My grandmother and grandfather were from Ukraine and about 100 years ago when they came to Canada to live a safer life as children. So it's been tragic to watch the outcome of what Russia's decided to do in Ukraine. It's painful to watch every day. And I think that it really highlights the dangers around idealistic policy in Europe of energy mix. What we saw was an overarching desire to reduce all fossil fuels within Europe. And the bad policy was that they didn't do so with a, a good plan to replace them. And of course, the replacement itself became Russian energy, both Russian gas and Russian oil. So in many ways, you can attribute not necessarily directly the invasion of the Ukraine to fossil fuel policy in Europe, but certainly indirectly, it financed and emboldened Putin to proceed with that invasion because of the dependency that Europe had developed on Russian fossil fuels. Biggest challenge with decarbonizing policy is that if you squeeze down on all things in one area, all you're likely to do is displace that source to somewhere else. And we've seen most recently with the Russian invasion is that most parts of the world now are increasing coal consumption. It's the old saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And here we have the outcome of much of what's happened in the last 20 years is that we have to rely on coal again. When you think back to how that relates to our business, we need to be able to make sure that we have steady, friendly supplies of energy. And when that energy happens to come from combustion of a fuel, we want to apply carbon capture as frequently as possible. To us, that's a multi-decade transition that's required to get down to where we have a global mix that's lower combustion. But we don't believe that you get to minimal combustion for many, many decades so the role of CCS is critical to make sure that we get both secure energy and low carbon energy. Mike, it seems like there's some areas where things are just you know, really hard to abate. Talk a little bit about that. What are some of the biggest challenges in terms of the characteristics that you see out there? Sure. Yeah. And I do get that question about well, what industry are you focused on decarbonizing with carbon capture? And really, we're agnostic about where we deploy carbon capture. The notion that there's certain industries that are hard to abate and others that are easy. I usually challenge that. The notion that there's anything that's easy to do in the energy mix on a global level, I think that that's a good reminder of the scale of the challenge we have in front of us. So it may seem easy to replace energy from burning coal to using solar panels and wind turbines, which on a smaller level, on the level that we're seeing right now, that is happening and we're seeing some success with that. But we're also seeing that the energy mix globally isn't shifting. We're still seeing about 80% from fossil fuels and 20% from a variety of renewable sources or low emission sources, including nuclear. Why is that? It's because of the scale of the problem. We still have a lot of work to do and it's going to be very, very hard. And while we make some strides here in North America and in Europe, most countries are going backwards. These are parts of the world where they're more worried about putting food on their table or surviving the night in cold weather 
than they are about climate change. We can't ask people not to have energy and the cheapest access to energy so they can pull themselves out of poverty. And that's what makes it so hard to decarbonize. Even the what would be thought of as easier to decarbonize sectors. Again, we don't believe that CCS has to be focused on one particular type of emission. It could be from any emission that has a good project where you have a clean emission source, something like natural gas, where the emissions themselves aren't hard on the equipment and the technology. So you want to have clean exhaust gas. You want to have a local storage site. And you need to have something to justify the investment, which is a carbon market or some value placed on the premium of the carbon or the carbon reduction. So to us, any project that has those three scenarios is a project that might be suitable for CCS. For us, it's not about the industry. A ton is a ton is a ton. And that's the way we think of it. Natalie, a lot of the things we talk about here seem kind of esoteric to the average person on the street, but you guys just had a pretty interesting announcement out of London, a recycling partnership. Tell us a little bit about that and what you guys are doing there. Yeah, we're really excited about this one. This will be Brookfield's first foray into the pure play recycling space. This is a partnership. We've made an investment into a company called Circular Services or Pure Play Recycling and Circular Services Provider out of the United States. And really what they're trying to do is expand the recycling infrastructure that's available. When you take a look at the recycling rates in the U.S. compared to Europe today, it's astounding. In the U.S., it's between 20 to 30 percent recycling rates. In Europe, it's 50% plus, and in some of the more advanced nations in Europe, it could get up to even 70%. So the U.S. is far behind. Today, it's easier to just push everything to landfill rather than investing in new recycling infrastructure. But the more material we recycle, it will have both a decarbonization benefit as well as will have a big help when we're thinking about the need for supply chains and incremental materials to actually be available as we're investing in some of these lower carbon solutions. Our partnership is going to be focused on scaling that recycling infrastructure and trying to find new innovative ways to actually recycle additional materials like textiles and electronics that are harder to recycle, organic waste as well. We're going to put an incremental $500 million behind building out the infrastructure that's required across the U.S. And as we expand the availability of recycled materials, we'll also be able to then contract with corporates who have set recycled targets as well to push that recycled material on the back end into their organization so that they can use it for bottling and other goals that they might have. That's it for today's episode. Thanks to Natalie and Mike for sharing their expertise. This wraps up the first arc of Brookfield Perspectives. If you missed any of our three episodes on decarbonization, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for more shows in the new year. Audiation.